and theories about why women aren't at parity with men. So the first is that women are becoming less ambitious. And so people will look at, oh, there's not as many women in leadership. It's because they're becoming less ambitious. We saw women step out of the workforce during COVID. And what we're actually seeing is that women are as ambitious as men and especially younger women um, who will freely say that they want to aspire and achieve leadership positions and that they have ambitions. Welcome to Elevate Your Career, the podcast dedicated to empowering individuals from all walks of life as they navigate the ever-changing landscape of their chosen fields. In this show, we'll be bringing on a diverse range of professionals from various career stages to uncover the secrets behind achieving success in any industry. We'll explore how they achieve their career goals and the paths they took to get there. Your host is none other than Nicole McMacken. CEO of the Irvine Technology Corporation, ITC, an award-winning information technology solutions and staffing provider. Now let's get to the show. Kim Jones, CEO of Kim Jones Alliance, is a transformational career coach and an expert in guiding women to make their careers their own. Kim has a holistic approach to guiding her clients to foster new skills, professional networks, and personal practices. In addition, Kim leads selective consulting engagements and organizations seeking to implement culture transformation solutions that foster DEI and high-performing work environments. On today's show, we'll be addressing the recently released McKinsey report on the state of women in the workplace. We'll be speaking about the four myths of microaggressions and how this impacts women's career trajectories. This is a dynamic discussion. Please listen. I think you will get a lot out of it, regardless if you're male, female, etc. Hope you enjoy. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I've been looking so forward to this. Um, Today's show, this episode, is going to be a little bit different. Uh, We're going to try something new. Uh, Kim is an expert in implementing cultural transformation solutions, and she's going to speak with us today about a recent McKinsey study that focuses on women in the workplace and how this study impacts women's trajectories. And so this is something that I'm super passionate about, and I hope that everyone listening would be interested, not just women, because um, I think there's some really robust takeaways from this conversation that can be had by everyone. So very excited. So let's get to it. I can't wait. This is one of my favorite topics as well. So I am looking forward to this conversation. Tell the audience a little bit about the research that you are really interpreting for us um, that McKinsey recently launched. Yeah, so McKinsey for a few years has been partnering with the Lean In organization uh, to take a look at the state of women in the workplace. And uh, each year they publish their findings that really uh, are meant to get behind why women are not making as much progress and advancing in the workplace or achieving the the parity that we are all looking for women to achieve with respect to leadership roles and uh, having equal representation in certain male-dominated fields, et cetera. So it's a really great sort of benchmark for us to take a look at each year to see how uh, the findings are progressing as we encounter things like COVID and other environmental changes as companies 
implement their diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, how those are impacting the trajectories of women in the workplace. And uh, this year was no exception. There were some really great findings that helped to uh, glean some insights as to why women are still so significantly underrepresented, particularly in positions of power and in leadership. I read something, I thought it was coming out of a McKinsey study, but I, I could be wrong, that just in the technology sector for women, that women were hovering around 18% in STEM for the technology sector, and that women, in fact, in the last two years in technology, it was getting worse. It was 2.1% less than it had been two years prior. If you could shed some light on us, a uh, lot on us. Well, yes, on us too, but we need some light. It's a little rainy out. Let us know kind of your interpretation of these facts and, and what your thoughts are along. And then I can, of course, you know, this is my area and yours, I know, of we're really interested in and, and do a lot of um, work in this field. So, you know, let's let's see the McKinsey Group and Lean In had to say. Well, so I think one of the, the things that... So first of all, the, the McKinsey study is not generic um, or it's generic. It's not specific to any industry. But if you take the the findings and extrapolate them to what we do know about the tech industry, so a couple of things that we know is that tech in general and STEM, um, but I'll talk about tech since that's really my background, uh, is that women are subjected to uh, a lot of biases and stereotypes about what constitutes an effective tech worker. A lot of that correlates with male traits. So for example, a if you ask someone to think about an innovative tech leader, you're going to think about mostly men. We all know who the, the strong tech uh, leaders are. Most of them are men. Uh, people think of innovation hand in hand with masculine traits. We don't tend to think about women's innovations in the same way as we think about men's innovation. We know that innovation is very important in the tech industry. So there are all these biases about what a successful tech worker looks like, and it's not correlated with the types of things that tra traditionally women are thought to bring to the table. Well, I mean, the, Kim, just playing devil's advocate, right? So you say to me, innovation, when you think of high tech and, and, and bringing things to the forefront. So, you know, I think of, of course, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates. Is that because there are not a lot of women that are considered? I mean, are they? Like, I'm trying to think, who are they? Because as yeah. I'm going through... Either I'm not hearing about them or they're not talked about with certain organizations. I, I don't know. I, I'll have to yeah. look at that and do some research. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because um, those are the names that come to mind when we think about tech innovation. And then it can kind of be this chicken and egg thing. Well, is it because the, the men are more innovative and so they're the ones that are, are starting the companies? But then if you look at what happens in the venture capital space and how funding is allocated and the fact that women-founded companies only receive between 2 and 4% of the venture capital funding, and you start to see that there's an opportunity difference. So if you think about who's building the companies that then get associated with tech leadership uh, and innovation, it is very much biased towards these startup companies that are predominantly being funded uh, in directions of, of companies that are um, that have male founders. And we know that there's all kinds of data. It's not just that women aren't coming forward with their ideas. There is all kinds of bias that plays out there as well that have to do with the same things, that women are not seen as being as capable of being innovative and leading a high-performing 
companies that have the potential to achieve unicorn status, for example. And so you have all of these biases that start at the very beginning of then who uh, is actually rising in the ranks of of being seen as innovative. And then taking that back to the McKinsey study. So if we just assume that we tend to look at men as being more capable of being successful in tech roles, women are often looked at as not being as um, competent in those roles. That plays into one of the major findings in the McKinsey study, which is this idea that microaggressions, which are defined as behaviors directed towards certain groups that reinforce stereotypes about them. So microaggression towards a woman in tech might be, wow, I can't believe you're competent in this role because she might be, be coming across as someone who's strong in her capacity. People might take a look at that and think like, wow, that's really surprising because we wouldn't expect you to be competent. That's an example of a microaggression. A microaggression could be things like being interrupted in meetings or being excluded from networks that have to do with all men. They could be commenting on something having to do with your gender. So how you behave in terms of how it's expected for your gender. So being commented as a woman on being too aggressive, for example, when that might not be interpreted as aggressive if, if that behavior were exhibited by a man, for example. So those are microaggressions that the study showed uh, actually impact women's trajectories in the workplace much more negatively than most people think. So if you think about microaggressions that happen that women are navigating um, as part of their, their work environments as they're being looked at through the lens of gender, that is actually affecting how safe they feel in the workplace, how much they're, they're willing to bring forward ideas, how innovative they are, are comfortable being. All of the things that we think about as being important leadership traits, when women get subjected to these microaggressions, they actually hold themselves back from the very behaviors that could lead them to move forward because they don't feel safe in that. So then taking it back to your original question, Nicole, about why are we seeing these statistics going backwards in tech, I would suspect that there's also a bias playing out here around this idea that if you are a successful tech worker, you live, breathe, and your passion is your work. So there's this idea that anyone who's good in tech is like, that's their life. That's their lifestyle. They, you know, they, they um, are sort of of that characteristic of where they are living and breathing tech all of the time. A lot of women during COVID, as we know, um, weren't able to show up in that same way because they had to pull back for caregiving needs or perhaps uh, these environments um, during that time didn't support some of the things that they had to contend to. So this idea that these workers are showing up in the same way in an environment like COVID caused at least a lot of clients that I saw and some of the data that I saw caused women to, to actually exit the field yeah. and think about going in other areas. Yeah, I think that's very true. And statistically speaking, there was a, a recent report that said, you know, within 10 years that a female is working, let's just highlight in the technology industry, they're actually leaving the industry. And the biggest misconception is that they're leaving the industry to start families. They're in fact not. They're leaving the technology um, vertical to go to different, completely different verticals, either within the same organization or outside of the organization. But touching on something, Kim, so you had said that within the field of technology and you were a CIO, do you feel that is 
a true analysis that the tech field, if you're getting into it, the expectation is that you have no life, that you have no family, that you're working around the clock. Is that something that you saw and felt when you were leading large teams? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of background on me. I was divisional CIO over at Farmers Insurance for a number of years. And the expectation was that we were available when we when the company needed us to be available to attend to the systems. So for example, we were implementing large projects on the weekends. If we had outages, the expectation was that we would be available to them day or night. There was expectations for long work days because we were often uh, put on projects that had very aggressive budgets and timelines and turnaround times. And, and so the teams were expected to really step up and work a lot of hours and a lot of off hours in order to perform those functions. If I could do it differently, I would have uh, made it easier for people who weren't able to meet those kinds of schedules, which were primarily women, to be able to accommodate some and have flexibility around how they could work within that environment successfully. What we didn't do is differentiate ever. We said this is expected of all employees in all roles, regardless of where you happen to sit within the organization. Uh, when I came in, I and, and my personal choice was because I've always been career minded is that I, I don't have a lot of family obligations. I am able to put in the time and the hours. And I didn't fully appreciate when I was coming up through the ranks how much that was excluding other people who had made different choices and that a lot of those people were women. So it was absolutely my experience that this was a limiting factor for so many women. Um, and just to share a, a, another story that kind of brings the point home is I didn't start my career in tech. I grew up through the operations side. I grew up in business. I actually came over to tech as a senior level leader to run uh, IT as a business and to prepare organizations for large-scale systems transformation. All the things surrounding that was my responsibility. I didn't need the technical background for that type of a role. So I felt very comfortable coming in in that capacity when I made the transition over. What was surprising to me is because the representation of women is so much lower in tech than it is on the business side, is how much stronger I felt bias was a factor in how I needed to navigate my role in uh, the technology side. So while gender bias had always been a big part of what I needed to navigate, even when I was on the business side, because I was in senior leadership roles where there weren't a lot of women, because women were better represented in business and people were used to, I think, seeing women more as competent in those roles. When I went over to IT, it was quite shocking how much more I had to establish my competence, establish credibility, uh, have to defend things that um, were part of my day-to-day decision-making, justify things that I didn't see a lot of my male counterparts having to do, which just added this additional burden to the work that I was doing and made it so much tougher for me. Well, and would you say that too, that in this transition from the business to IT, that many, many women, and this probably happened to you as well, the need to be perfect because you're going to be judged or you knew that you were going to be judged much harder. So having to do double work just to make sure that you had all your ducks in a row, because if you didn't, right, and there was a slip or or this, then, you know, it would be, oh, see, she shouldn't be here. 
right? Or she's not capable. She's not from IT. Yep. And so were you finding that as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was finding that like on a, on a pretty regular basis, there was this idea that I think it's this confirmation bias that we have. So if you look at me coming into IT and I didn't just have the gender lens, but I had the fact that I didn't come up through the technology background as sort of a a secondary way that people would look at me and say I wasn't qualified to do the job that I had. And so there was this idea that anything that I would do that wasn't perfect or was a mistake or an error would get judged as confirmation bias. Exactly as you said, see, we knew that she couldn't cut it in here in in this type of role. Did you think that or did you know that? Was that something, because I think it could be both ways, right? Because women, we as women feel that there's this overarching negativity or, or doubt and we, it creates self-doubt for us, right? Sometimes we are projecting and feeling that when it's really not out there. Do you, was it out there or was it something that was self-inflicted or, or maybe it was both? It's a great question. I think at the time, and this is what I see for most women is we do tend to personalize it and say that it's coming from us. Like in other words, I, I don't think I consciously thought I have to work harder to establish credibility. I have to do things with fewer errors to be seen as competent. I think what I thought was I have to be perfect to do my job well. And I internalized the feedback that I got. If maybe I wasn't, you know, if I did something that wasn't perfect and I got feedback to that regard, I took it as a personal flaw. I didn't really see it as other people and other demographics were getting judged much less harshly than me. So we tend to internalize that and think like, okay, I'm not good enough. And that feeds what, you know, we know a lot of women suffer from imposter syndrome. They tend to hold their voices back. It's not because we're, you know, we're flawed in some way. In some ways, we actually are pretty astute because we know that we are going to get judged by a different standard. I mean, we don't know that maybe it's a different standard. We know that we're going to be judged by a very high standard. Um, And maybe we even see that other people aren't being judged as rigorously. And we may interpret that to mean that, what am I doing wrong? How come I can't get the same kind of support or assumption of credibility as my counterparts are? Now, I think there's more awareness of the data to suggest that gender bias plays a role in this. But if we don't really look at that as being part of the playing field and we internalize it and personalize it, it actually can contribute to exactly what you're saying. We then start to hold ourselves back, which then goes into what we see in the study, which is women are not rising as it's one of the factors why women aren't rising as quickly is when they're faced with these microaggressions, they start to hold themselves back. Um, it becomes sort of this you know, the cycle. Well, super, super interesting. I'll jump in real quick, but the women in leadership course that I run in and you are a big part of and it's success. So thank you first and foremost. Uh, but it's really interesting. And I think you've, you've heard it in the courses over the last five years. So many women just don't speak up and they, you know, we're, we're sitting back and we're coaching and saying, listen, here's an opportune time that this is what you would say and let people know, or you're presenting and you're sitting in the back of the room and not saying anything because you are feeling so heavily judged. And maybe what you're about to say is going to be viewed differently than what another person, you know, or a different gender would say. And it's, it's really interesting. And we're talking about microaggressions and the whole reason that I started that women in leadership program, as you know, the story I was presenting to a fortune 500 
on the business side and on the IT side, and there was no female leaders. And mm-hmm. then at the end of my presentation, uh, two gentlemen had come up to me and approached me and said, wow, Nicole, that was really, really great. We weren't expecting that. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm the only woman here, only blonde woman. And I, I quickly turned and a little bit sassy and I just said, well, my goodness, I don't know if I should thank you or be offended. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's those type, but I, I will tell you, probably not a lot of people would turn and say that and call it out in a way that it was kind of in jest, but not. And they they got the point. But I think that's a huge challenge that women have not only in IT we're speaking of, but in general is, is approaching things and calling things out. And then in a manner that, you know, just allows the, the person to be to knowledgeable around speaking with women. And I think that's a big, a big part in why women are held back in their careers and they're holding themselves back meaning. Yeah. And I love that example because for, for a couple of reasons, first of all, you were faced with a microaggression in that moment that, you know, like, wow, I can't believe you, you know, you came across as so competent. We weren't expecting that is clearly like saying, yeah, a blonde woman like you, we wouldn't expect anything from her in terms of like being able to like show up in this sort of forum as a leader. And, and so that uh, I work with so many women. And so when I coach women who, who face this, they're often saying things like, what do I need to do in order to not have that happen? And that that's what can happen a lot is we start to say, how do I fix the environment so that I'm not viewed through this lens of bias? And oftentimes, this is where we get into the solution part of it. Like what you were saying is, in those moments, how do you actually show up in those moments? Because what can happen is we can make ourselves smaller. We can feel a little bit less uh, powerful because someone is giving these cues that they don't see us as powerful, which then can affect how we feel about ourselves. So it's so important. Like what you did in that moment is to hold your power, to hold your power and say, this comment is not going to diminish me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to call out the fact that there is clearly bias happening in this conversation and really um, how we think about it, not as what do I need to fix about myself, but more of how do I, I stand my ground in those environments? How do I communicate about what I'm seeing in a way that doesn't reinforce this idea that, you know, we're playing a gender card or that we are, you know, um, not thin skinned or emotional or what have you like there's that this is the thing that's so tough about it is navigating that environment where you can continue to maintain your power and call out things when it's appropriate to do so that starts to shift the awareness so that people can, um, you know, hopefully reflect a little bit more on on what they're bringing to reinforce some of these patterns. You're so right. Are you enjoying the episode thus far? We'll be right back after a quick word with our sponsor, Irvine Technology Corporation, ITC. Are you ready to thrive in the ever-evolving tech industry? The tech world is constantly changing, and ITC is your partner for navigating it successfully. Whether you're seeking top-tier tech professionals or the perfect opportunity, we are happy to connect you with talent to transform your business. At ITC, we specialize in placing first-rate, diverse technology talent into corporations with a particular focus on underrepresented groups in tech. We believe in bringing new perspectives and ideas to your team. Together, we can contribute to a more innovative technology industry. Diversity isn't just a buzzword for us, it's in our DNA. Whether you're looking at bringing on more tech talent or you're a tech professional searching for your perfect role and employer, look no further. Take a look at www.irvinetechcorp.com and pick the best option for you. 
Be part of our mission to create a more inclusive and innovative technology industry. Once again, it's www.irvinetechcorp.com. Now back to the show. And I think a key to it, because, you know, you and I both get approached around this topic quite often about how do I say things. And it, and it's really thinking about it strategically and always remaining professional in how mm-hmm. you do so. It was funny. I was giving a keynote speech about two or three weeks ago in Los Angeles, and I, it was all around uh, women and um, women in tech. And a gentleman had approached me right after, and I had shared with the group that I was speaking to about our Women in Leadership course and, of course, what had really sparked me to start and found the course and was this interaction that I had, this microaggression. And he approached me and I thought it was a really good question. He had said, how do you know that that was a microaggression and that that wasn't just someone saying, hey, that was really great. We weren't expecting that. That was just really, really good. And I said, you know, that's such a good question. I said, if there were other women seated at the table between the business and IT, and I wasn't the only woman in the room, I think I would have taken it like that. I would have taken it as, oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that that you enjoyed it and we have more to come and I'll be with you all year. But instead, because the room had no women in it, that I immediately took it as a microaggression. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, remains to be seen, but I felt that. And I felt yeah. that. And if there were other women, if maybe if it was even three or four out of the 13 or five out of the 13, I probably wouldn't have taken it that way. You know, knowing your audience and knowing the validation point, if you're feeling something, perhaps, you know, taking a look at the room and saying, yes, I think that's what it is. And I feel comfortable moving forward in this statement. Absolutely. And I think if you just look at the data, the data suggests, and this is all in the McKinsey report, how much more we as women are subjected to microaggressions. They are actually happening. We can measure it. It has been measured. It has been demonstrated to be a factor in women's trajectory. So yes, there is a there is a, a likelihood. Maybe even it, it could have been probable that this was not a microaggression, but the fact is that microaggressions are very common. And so it's not mis- guided to think that this was a microaggression. And especially because we do get subjected to them all the time, it's hard not to interpret behaviors like that in that way. So if I'm constantly being interrupted in a meeting and my male counterparts aren't, the next guy who interrupts me may be interrupting men and women at the same rate, but I'm more likely to interpret that in the way that it usually happens or often happens, which is these are behaviors that get perpetrated against people and marginalized groups at a much higher rate than in dominant groups. And that we know that they have an impact on how women and other underrepresented groups progress in the workplace. So it is important that we talk about it, even if it wasn't intended that way, even highlighting it as this is how it could be interpreted could be helpful for that person to say, you know, I want to stay away from those comments, even though I didn't mean it that way, because of how it could be interpreted. It wasn't my intention, but it still had the impact. It's like a very common microaggression with African-American people, which is this idea of being articulate. I don't know if if you've heard this one. It's like when um, well-spoken Black people are talking, in some cases, they get feedback like, wow, you're so articulate. 
And that's a microaggression that they often experience. And there was actually this one time where I was listening to the most articulate person who happened to be Black. And I, I wanted to say something about that, but I thought in my mind, you know what? No, that's going to come across to them as reinforcing the stereotype that Black people are not articulate. And if I, I mean this comment as you are exceptional in the way you just articulated that could be interpreted as microaggression. And I think that's kind of the point that you were making is maybe you really did blow this person away. But because this is such a common thing for women, it can easily be flipped in that direction. So people who offer those kinds of comments, for them to be aware of that and to manage what they say from that lens can be really helpful also in starting to move the needle in a better direction. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was um, had a meeting with UC San Diego a couple of months ago, and they were doing a lot of work around this. They actually put out a deck and um, the CTO shared it with me. And it was all around what we're talking about, just awareness, you know, making people aware the words that they use, the phrases that they use could be interpreted or misinterpreted or hurtful. And it was really eye-opening for me because there were certain, I looked at the deck and there was certain words hit at UC San Diego are teaching their um, corporate division to stay away from, which I say all the time, which is I've got a little housekeeping for us to do here today. I, I say it all the time. And that was one of the words. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, I shouldn't say that because that really denotes, you know, signals women and housekeeping and this, and they were mm -hmm. saying black and white you know, no, it's black and white. So really trying to be with those words. If you think about it, it's black and white, it's divisive, right? They're, they can't be anywhere close. It's one or the other. And then just more, you know, words like my tribe, this is my tribe. And, you know, all these things that we don't think about, but other people view them and, and perhaps aren't saying anything to us and coming forth, but it, it could be misinterpreted. It, it could be hurtful. It could be a microaggression. And I want to know about it is an individual who cares about that and who cares about people and their success. And certainly I never want something that I have said to hold another person back or make them feel you know, less than. And so mm -hmm. that's, it's an important topic. So really, yeah. really glad we're discussing. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with you. It's like you, we just get conditioned into speaking in, in certain ways and, and don't even give it a second thought and understanding and, and caring enough, like you said, to understand the impact that that might be having. I've got some examples I recently came across as well as using the word master. So like master bedroom or master class, like that, that can be offensive to some people. And you think, wow, you know, it's, it's really interesting or you guys, right? Like saying you guys versus you all. So it's really interesting to think about how we really build inclusive language, you know, in the grand scheme of things, how big of an impact does it make in terms of shifting the needle? I don't know the answer to that question, but it does show a sensitivity that we are thinking about the experiences of other groups and we care enough about how our words land with them that we are willing to consider and to change things that may not be offensive to us, but could be very offensive to other people, especially people who are in marginalized groups. Perhaps even those groups and they look at it and they say, hey, this is not offensive. This is so ridiculous. It's more offensive that you're you're trying to change that. That could be true. But I think that 
you could look at that and say, you know, here people are really trying because I hear conversely the opposite, right? Like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like we're not able to say any longer master bedroom or we're not able to say, you know, whatever the word is and the connotation and that, you know, people are making a big deal about it. But I think in the end, it just shows that people are trying, that they're trying to be better. They're trying to be considerate of others. They're trying to have a level playing field and they're trying to be inclusive. And so you can't really fault them because I hear it on both sides, right? I hear the direction that we're coming from and saying, look, these have potential to hold people back, to reinforce there are stigmas that they they hold in those groups versus, hey, you guys are being ridiculous. You know, why are we changing this now? This is meaning, you know, meaningless and, and on and on. But I do think that we have to create a bridge of we're at least trying. Everyone's trying. Everyone's being cognizant. And I think it, it ends up being a better place for everyone. I couldn't agree more. And I actually, I welcome that kind of dialogue as well, where, you know, you've got people who sort of look at some of this stuff as overkill, or is it really worth putting all the effort into something that may or may not have a big impact? I think what's more important is the conversation and the consideration around it, that we're really understanding our audiences, understanding where people are coming from, trying to be sensitive to that. Um, you know, taking care to learn how to pronounce someone's name correctly or to use the pronouns that they prefer using, you know, like that we have to do a little work on our side because there's also, I think, some implied uh, messages in the, you know, this is overkill and we shouldn't have to do all these things. There's some implied messages of I shouldn't have to make myself uncomfortable in any way to adapt what I'm doing in order to help someone feel included or help someone to help uh, undo some of the damages of, you know, past, you know, the past to try to bring everyone into a place where there's, there's better equity. And sometimes that does mean that those of us who are in dominant groups uh, have to work a little bit harder to understand and, and change behaviors that we've been used to not having to think twice about. And I think to your point, are we going to get it right all the time? Is sometimes it going to be the wrong thing? Absolutely. But just making that effort to say that we um thinking about other people and how to do things in ways that help them feel more included and, and safe is, is I think that is the conversation we need to be having. I agree. I know, I think last year, McKinsey study, or maybe it was two years ago. I don't know if they do. They put the report out every year. Yes. Yeah, so it's been going on for at least the, I've only been uh, reading it for the last two to three years. But so it's been at least a few years coming out now. And I know it, it, maybe it was last year's report or it could be this year's report, but talking about mentors for women and the significance of mentors, the significance of advocates. Did you see anything in this year's report regarding that? I don't think I saw it in this year's report, but we can certainly talk about why mentorship and sponsorship um, is so important for women. I'll have to go back and check because I know there were some um, some suggestions that they made for how to counter some of the the four key findings that they had that were holding women back. But I'm like you, know, I'm wondering if it was this year's report, or if it was in a prior yeah. report. What are the four items? What are the four segments that are holding women back? In yeah, that report? so these are the myths that are holding uh, women back, or or it's not really that they're holding women back. These are myths and theories about why women aren't 
at parity with men. So the first is that women are becoming less ambitious. And so people will look at, oh, there's not as many women in leadership. It's because they're becoming less ambitious. We saw women step out of the workforce during COVID. And what we're actually seeing is that women are as ambitious as men and especially younger women um, who will freely say that they want to aspire and achieve leadership positions and that they have ambitions. What the nuance here is, is that women actually want more flexibility so that they don't feel like they have to sacrifice everything else that's important in their lives in order to achieve the levels that they want to achieve. So that's the first one. The second one is the myth that microaggressions have a micro impact. So we've been talking about this one for a little bit now. And that's the idea that microaggressions don't have a big impact on women in the workplace. And in fact, they have a very big impact on their trajectories. We've talked about this a little bit, that it tends to make women pull back, not feel safe, not use their voice, not step step into situations where they're taking risks. That's actually the third one. The second one is that the biggest barrier to women's advancement is the glass ceiling. And so this is the idea that there is a glass ceiling and that women get to a certain level and they can't penetrate the glass ceiling. So it's almost like I will make it all the way up to a certain level and then I can't get to the C-suite or to senior leadership positions. And what they actually found is that it's the broken rung. It's the fact that women are falling off leadership at every step of the way. So for example, we know that men and women are roughly hired at at the same rate. So when in entry-level jobs, men and women are roughly represented 50-50. But then when you see that first level of promotion to a first-line manager, you see for every 100 men that are promoted, only 87 women are promoted. And that that cycle perpetuates all the way up. So by the time you start getting to the C-suite, you have far fewer women in leadership positions to even choose from. So it's broken rung, not glass ceiling. And this has to do with another bias, which is the bias that I think most of us are familiar with by now that women get uh, promoted based on their experience while men get promoted based on their potential. So if I'm equal in every way to a male counterpart, and we're both up for promotion, they're more likely to look at me and say, you know what, Kim, she's really great. She's doing a good job. We think she's fantastic. However, she hasn't done this particular role. We don't think she's ready yet. So we're, we shouldn't have the experience. So we're going to keep her where she is. Whereas a male counterpart with the exact same um, credentials, they may look at that person and say, fantastic, done a great job. We think he can do it. We think he has potential. We're going to go ahead and take a chance and, and promote him. And that's one of the main reasons why you see that broken rung, especially at that first level, because women don't have a lot of experience then. They just have their potential as men do. And so you see women not getting promoted as fast um, and that being a primary reason for it. And what can we do about that? So one of the things that that is recommended is to really objectively uh, lay out what the expectations are for promotion and that they actually be things that are measurable in terms of this impacts. This is an, a direct impact in the job that I'm looking for in that position and then evaluate your your candidates equally on um, meeting those those criteria. Um, and so if you have a situation where people have equal experience, if, if you say, okay, we need this criteria in order to be promoted, if that person, male and female, both don't have it, 
then you're automatically saying, okay, we're not promoting either one of them, or we need to change the criteria versus, oh, well, he doesn't have it. We'll give it to him. She doesn't have it. We don't think she's ready. So sure. kind of making all of that objective. And then also just highlighting that this bias exists so that people can really be more self-reflective about whether or not they are applying bias when they're looking at female candidates. And Kim, you know, part of your company as a CEO, you're traveling and going throughout the country and talking to C-level executives about this and having them implement based upon these four myths, right? The solves. These are some things that corporations could be doing. These are some trainings that your managers, senior managers, vice presidents need to be, you know, having to make sure that there is no bias in hiring. And it's not just with women, right? It's, it's a lot of different underrepresented groups. And so it's, it's super important work that you're doing. Talk a little bit about the broken rung, right? They started, um, they, you know, who's the, they, right? We always say they, but you hear different reports are now coming forward and saying there is the no glass ceiling. It's now, uh, the barrier for zoom or teams that are holding women back because women aren't willing to go back into the office. And Mm -hmm. so they're holding back their own careers. And as we know, it's for organizations that are are just completely on Zoom or virtual, networking opportunities are specifically very, very difficult for women. And that's where oftentimes people who are in a network and who know one another, those are the ones that traditionally get promoted. And so they are saying that this Zoom ceiling, they're calling it, right, is in effect. Um, not necessarily the glass ceiling, but you know, it, tell us a little bit about that and what are some solves for that? Basically, what you're pointing to here, I think, is the fact that there's this expectation that workers return to the office. And we know that the biggest impacts, negative impacts of returning to the office are people who are in caregiving roles, which tend to be women. And women have been leading the the forefront of, we want the flexibility. So they're willing in many cases to say no to jobs that don't give them the, the flexibility that they're looking for, which then leads to this whole idea that women aren't as ambitious when in fact they are, but they're looking for flexibility. So if you assume that in a Zoom environment, you have you do have challenges that you need to overcome in order to be as effective. So let's just say that all other things being equal, um, you know, that there's flexibility and that there is some hybrid component and you you want if you're on Zoom more often, you have to figure out how you're going to be effective with um, networking and maintaining culture and all of the things that come with being in person. So the thing about Zoom and my experience has been really the intention around how you need to use it effectively. So we know, for example, that remote work can be very effective, but it needs to be structured in in certain ways so that you don't lose that sort of connection that you have with people. It just means you have to manufacture the connection a little bit more. You have to be more intentional about how you use Zoom to connect with people, to network. And then I think it's also really important to scrutinize what is the kind of work that people should be in person for. So if you've got an organization that wants some kind of a hybrid structure is really understanding what kind of work should be done in the office versus what should be done in Zoom. And for all workers to sort of play in an environment where that comes forth in the most effective way. I think what you're seeing right now is 
because the job market has shifted, companies are looking at this as an opportunity where workers are not as likely to move because there aren't, you know, there isn't the kind of job environment we had a few years ago where people were able to find jobs easily. You see a lot of companies using this to bring back people into the office without really thinking through what does that do to some of the folks that are going to, you know, be negatively impacted by that. Do we really need people to be in the office to the degree that we want them to be in the office? Um, those kinds of things, I think, are like a meet it more of a meet in the middle. We're accounting for the flexibility that will benefit underrepresented groups and also being intentional about when we are in person and how we network, whether it's in person or Zoom, that that's all thought through so that people don't have obstacles um, resulting from um, not having really thought through those implications. It's kind of interesting. You know, if you listen to and read the statistics on diverse groups and the ROI that they bring against non-diverse groups, right? And it could be in IT. It, it shows up everywhere, right? People have been talking about it for years, but what you're saying really holds true. And it's going to be a lot of work because the people that now are not going to be able to have hybrid uh, or go back or, you know, relocate after they've already relocated somewhere else um, for cost of livings are, are traditionally going to be minority groups, women and and others. So I think that the corporations have a lot of consideration to, to make and work to do in regards to how we bring hybrid back to the office and considerations around DE&I. And then Another thing that was was really interesting, I heard uh, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, and I can't remember if it was, I, I listened to it, it was on the radio while I was driving. So I think they were quoting, and I, I, this may be wrong, it may not be the Wall Street Journal. So, but it, it was some news source and they were quoting another news source saying that jobs are moving back to the office and employers are looking for individuals who are going to be on site. And from that on site, those are going to be the individuals, number one, that are going to be compensated higher than people who are working remote, as well as those are the individuals that are going to be, for all intents and purposes, elevating their career. They're going to be looking from that pool of on site committed individuals for their future leaders and managers within those organizations. And that they had given that this would be the new norm by 2027 is mm -hmm. that you are going to be compensated less if you work remote, you'll be compensated more for on-site and the leaders of the organizations are going to come from those workers that are there on-site. Have you heard anything of that sort? I heard, I've not heard this specific one, but I've heard versions of this. So for example, there are some companies that are setting up regional pay structure. So if you decide your, your company is based in LA and you've moved to Idaho and you're working remotely from Idaho, that they're actually adjusting your comp levels to reflect the cost of living in the place where you now live. So that's one thing I've heard. I've, I, so there's all kinds of, I think, different ways that companies are thinking about how they're going to handle this new kind of normal we find ourselves in where employees have more options to work remotely. I think the one that you're that you mentioned is not surprising to me at all to hear that that's how companies are looking at it because I think what they're trying a lot of companies are trying to do is figure out ways they can incentivize people 
back into the workplace, um, which is really fascinating because, you know, overwhelmingly workers want the flexibility to be able to work from home and, you know, come to the office and when it makes sense for them to come to the office. But you have a lot of companies that are used to working in a certain environment, um, a lot of leaders who come from generations where they've only worked in the office. And so how we kind of bridge that gap, I think, is a really interesting question because we know that because so many people want those flexible work schedules, that companies that are able to accommodate that will likely have their top choice of candidates that they will be able to skim the cream, if you will. Sure. So it'll be interesting to see how companies start to think about this also as a competitive, potential competitive advantage for those who can do it well. Um, and there's some really interesting data coming out of Gallup too about this whole idea of culture and how it impacts in a remote environment. And Gallup did find actually in their latest study that hybrid work is the most effective. It's more effective than um, 100% of the office and more effective than 100% remote. So the order is hybrid is most effective, remote is after that, in-person, full-time is least effective of all the models. But what they have, they have noted is that they're starting to see what's really important for engagement. So when you don't have that in-person all of the time, having one meaningful conversation with your employee once a week can be um, a differentiator in terms of bringing an engaged uh, and loyal workforce. So there are little things like that, like techniques that we're starting to learn coming post-COVID of what works in these remote environments that I think companies can start to adopt to replace some of the cultural impacts of not always being in person and then allow them to compete for the top talent that really wants that flexibility. Wow, that's good stuff. That That is really interesting. So, yeah. and it's just, it'll be, I'm curious about what happens, right? What happens in these next few years? We're, we're seeing a real mix of our clients, most going back full time. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, I think the remote companies you know, they, they may have a great opportunity to get some top tier talent for them. And, and it just, you know, we never know. I think this COVID had changed things up so dramatically and put everything topsy turvy. So, uh, where we go from here, but Kim, I did want to thank you for today. This is so enlightening and I hope our listeners, you know, really got quite a bit out of it. I know I certainly did and love, love speaking to you constantly on any topic. And you are a phenomenal speaker, as you know, I compliment <laughs> you all the time, not because you're a woman, but because I think you're really, you're really great. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. How can our listeners find you? Uh, so I can be found at kimjonesalliance.com. That is my website. Uh, and uh, my handle on LinkedIn is Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-E-S Jones. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn and connect with me there as well. Good. I hope they do. Kim is a phenomenal coach, phenomenal business leader, and changing women's lives across the U.S. So thank you for all you do. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for all you do. I uh, can't thank you enough for um, all of the collaboration that we've had over the last uh, couple of years. It's really meant so much. And uh, thanks for having me on today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Elevate Your Career podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on your chosen platform that you are listening to us on. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share this episode with them or post it on your social media to share with your friends. You can catch the show notes for this episode and any mentioned links in the description of this episode. 
Irvine Technology Corporation, ITC, excels at finding top-tier tech professionals and matching them with businesses. Whether you're an employer with tech opportunities or a tech professional searching for the perfect role, ITC is your go-to solution. Visit www.irvinetechcorp.com for more information. Once again, it's www.irvinetechcorp.com. We'll see you on the next episode.